grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the Gospel for today, Jesus says, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who have no need for repentance. For sinners only, there's a church in South Australia, a little country town out back, that is ordinary in every way, except for one extraordinary feature that makes this a very special church for me. If you go to that church and go to Holy Communion, as you kneel before the altar, you'll have written, inscribed before your eyes, for sinners only. And then, as you look up to the ceiling of the sanctuary, you will see the words that you can only see when you're in the sanctuary and look up, joy in heaven. For sinners only, that's why the tax collectors and sinners came to hear Jesus. They came to hear Jesus because he spoke good news to them, good news about the joy of repentance. He gave them reason to rejoice. For sinners only, that's why you have come here today to listen to Jesus and to eat at his table this morning. Well, is that right? Should Jesus do this? It's not what we expect. We would expect Jesus to call sinners to repentance. We would expect Jesus to use his law to expose sin and to tell people that they've got to straighten themselves out before they can come into God's presence. Does this mean, as his critics say, as Jews and particularly Muslims say, that Jesus is soft on sin? For sinners only. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were right, half right, that is, in their criticism of Jesus. They weren't nitpicking, but they were good theologians who had good reasons for their criticism of Jesus and his associating with sinners. You see, they had a passion. Oh, they had a passion for God's word, God's law. And they had a zeal for holiness that few of us could match. They lived their lives as in God's holy presence. And that's why they maintained the same standards of purity as the priests did during their service at the temple in Jerusalem. Very, very strict rules for purity. Before every meal, they would say grace. They would use the most holy name of the Lord in grace before their meals. 
And because they said grace, they realised that God was the host of their meal and they were his guests. God's presence with them, the saying of grace over their meal, made every meal a holy meal. Since they knew the Old Testament well, since they knew God's law in the Old Testament, they knew about God's aversion to sin. And they knew about the impurity that comes from sinning. God was most holy, and since God was most holy, he couldn't possibly tolerate anything unclean, unholy, evil in his presence. God's holiness and impurity are incompatible with each other. They exclude each other, like gasoline and fire. Bring gasoline into connection with fire and the fire burns up the gasoline. Or like light with darkness. Bring light into the darkness and the darkness drives, I mean the light drives out the darkness. They didn't want to, and quite rightly, didn't want to desecrate God's holiness. And that's why they shunned sinners. That's why they shunned the people who were rejected by God because they had deliberately and consistently and continually flouted God's law. Unrepentant people like prostitutes and the tax agents who ripped them off by quite unjustly collecting far too much revenue for the occupying forces, the Romans. They knew that if they invited sinners into their homes for a meal, the sinners, or the sinners would contaminate the meal. The sinners would desecrate their holiness and God's holiness. They would then become guilty of sacrilege. And there's nothing worse than that, the sin of sacrilege. So the Pharisees had good theological reasons to complain about Jesus and his deliberate policy of associating with sinners. They criticized Jesus because they knew, quite rightly, that the penalty for deliberate desecration of God's holiness was death and damnation. If anybody desecrated God's holiness, the wrath of God would be on them. So, if Jesus was involved in sacrilege, how could he escape God's wrath? How could the most holy Messiah, the Christ, desecrate God's holiness by receiving sinners and ushering them into God the Father's presence? Surely, such a man would be rejected by God. Surely such a man would be condemned to death by God himself. That was their assessment. And you know what? They were right in their assessment of Jesus. Jesus quite deliberately defiled himself, contaminated himself by receiving sinners and eating with them. And in doing so, he took on their sin and he became unclean. His holiness was desecrated. And the moment he first did that, the death, his death on the cross became inevitable. 
The penalty for desecration is death. The cost of Jesus associating with sinners was his death on the cross. That's why on the altar we have the crucifix to remind us of the cost that Jesus had to pay to eat and drink with sinners. He brought down God's wrath upon himself by associating with sinners. As you remember, he was tried in a duly constituted Jewish court, a religious court, and sentenced to death by God's representative, the high priest, who was speaking for God when he sentenced Jesus to death. And he was forsaken by his heavenly Father as he hung there on the cross under the dark cloud of God's wrath. The cost of Jesus' association with sinners like you and me was his death on the cross. Yes, the Pharisees are half right in their criticism of Jesus. But they're also completely wrong because they see only half of the picture like a one-eyed sporting fan. They saw only the one side of it, the fact that Jesus became unclean. They didn't see that Jesus became unclean in order to give sinners like you and me his purity, his holiness. Yet the strange thing, and I find this very odd, that Jesus doesn't get stuck into them and he doesn't tear strips off them because they get things wrong. He doesn't even criticize them for criticizing him. Instead, he tells them these two wonderful little parables. They're very simple stories, you know them well. The first one is about a shepherd who loses one sheep and leaves the 99 grazing by themselves there in the pasture lands and goes out and looks for the one sheep who's lost. And the other one is a story about a woman who lost a coin. Now this is not just a dollar or any small coin. The coin that she lost was part of her dowry. She wore it on her head. It was her dowry and it constituted her life savings. Um, and by losing that she lost something infinitely precious. Just as if you women lost your engagement ring. I still remember when my mother lost her engagement ring. She cleaned the house inside and outside and never found it. And that was a matter of grief for her until she died. So Jesus tells these two stories um, to explain that he takes on our sin and our impurity in order to give us his righteousness and purity. Just imagine Jesus reaches out to you today. He takes you on his shoulders and he brings you into his presence. For what reason? So that he can take your sin on himself at the altar and give you his most holy and precious body and blood by which he makes you clean and holy before God the Father. And that's quite deliberate. He takes on your sin and he gives you his purity. 
St. Paul puts it well in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, For our sake God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, that's in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In these two parables, Jesus explains two things. First of all, he explains why he came to earth, why he lived a human life and died a human death. He didn't wait for us to come back to God, but he came out in search of us where we were, lost as we were to God, lost as we were in sin. He got, comes out after us. He looks for us diligently, patiently, until he finds us. And then he brings us back home to God the Father on his shoulders. If you like to see the things, that, the, uh, the way Jesus sees them, it's as if Jesus came to you in your house this morning, picked you up and carried you into his presence here and the presence of God the Father this morning. He comes out after you and he brings you home. And that's repentance, being found by Jesus, um, being brought home by Jesus. Like a good shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to fend for themselves as they graze, he risks all that he has and spares no cost to find you. I don't know whether you realize, no sensible shepherd would leave 99 sheep by themselves to go out after one lost, one that's lost. Because uh, the result would be that he'd lose the whole lot, not just one. It's a stupid thing to do, a senseless thing to do, a divine thing to do. And like a married woman who turns her house inside out to find her engagement ring, Jesus goes to great lengths and expends much effort to find you and to bring you back to God. Secondly, Jesus uses these parables to explain why he quite deliberately ate and drank with sinners, even though that cost him his life. He ate and drank with sinners because he wanted to celebrate with them. The meals that he had with sinners were meals of celebration in which he rejoiced in finding lost people and bringing them back home to God. They were meals that celebrated the joy of repentance. You see, for us Christians, repentance is not a sorrowful thing, a mournful thing, but a glad thing, a joyful thing a matter of rejoicing. And repentance is a gift from God through his Holy Spirit. Because in repentance, Jesus comes out to us where we are and brings us on his shoulders back to his heavenly Father. And as he brings us back, he calls on everybody and he says, Rejoice with me, for I've lost... I, excuse me. Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost. And that's what Jesus is saying to each of you today. Rejoice with me, because I've found not one lost sheep, but all you lost sheep. 
My dear fellow Christians, have you any idea how overjoyed Jesus is to see you here in this church today? Jesus is so overjoyed with you that he provides a marvellous meal for you, that he spreads his table for you so that he can rejoice in your homecoming. And he doesn't just rejoice by himself. I don't know whether he picked that up. He rejoices together with the angels and he rejoices together with his heavenly Father. And so, my dear friends, rejoice with Jesus as he rejoices in you. Rejoice with the angels who surround us. If you knew, if you had eyes to see and ears to hear, you would hear the angels singing and rejoicing as you come to Holy Communion this morning. And rejoice above all with God the Father, who is so pleased to have you come to him that he gives you the body and blood of his dear Son to show you how much he loves you and how much he rejoices in you. So rejoice. Remember the church in that little town in South Australia called Robertstown and the inscription on its altar? Well, as you come to Holy Communion, imagine the words for sinners only on the altar as you kneel to receive the body and blood of Christ. And then, before you leave the altar, look up and see and sense the joy in heaven, God's joy in you and your presence with him. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. Amen.